from 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, welcome to The Art of the Matter. Made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you and from the Palladium at the Center for the Performing Arts. The music for today's show is courtesy of the Buscelli Wallarab Jazz Orchestra from their Heart and Soul album, available on iTunes. Welcome to The Art of the Matter. I'm Sharon Gamble. This week, a banker-turned-artist, a funk and soul salon, and more than 4,000 works of clay for your consideration. And don't forget, we'll have that arts calendar we call What Will We Do? All of this and more right after the latest news from NPR. to the Art of the Matter from 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble, and today Dorothy Alex's art is featured at the Circle City's new Cummins Building. But first, as a child, Julie Kern was, well, a little different. She liked going into antique stores. She didn't seem destined to become an assemblage artist, but in 2005 she was working as an executive in the world of retail banking when she became seriously ill. After her recovery, she left her banking career and turned to art. She now goes by a single name, Satch. Contributor Pete Brown visited Satch's studio at Circle City Industrial Complex to discover what led her to that career change and where she finds her inspiration. Well, Satch, let's let's just go back in time a little bit. Um, how did you even get involved in being creative? Uh, I know that's kind of a vague question, but I mean, as you think back to growing up, or maybe it was later in life that you came to creativity. What was? What are some of the memories you have? that encouraged you to just travel down that creative path in the first place? Well, I do remember in elementary school that art was my favorite class at school. And I I did a lot of drawing and painting myself back in my childhood. But then there was a long gap. So Mm. you have to go from that time, fast forward to about 2005. Okay. And um, I had just left a corporate banking job for 27 years and decided that it was about time to start doing something I really wanted to do as a child. Wow. Which was art. Okay. So um, took an extra bedroom in the house and converted it into an art studio, and that was the start of it. And when you jumped into it, what was it, did you have a medium of preference, or, or was there something where you were just experimenting with materials that led you to where you are today? I, I think my experiences in life up to that point led me to the assemblage. Okay. I was always a collector. Even as a child, I liked going antique shopping, Mm. which was kind of unusual. So I always liked uh, texture and old things, things with patina. And um, I also liked building things. I liked using tools. Mm. So when I decided that I needed to get back to that creative part of my brain, the assemblage was a good fit for me. Okay. And I also liked the concept of the materials I was using in my art not to be new. Mm. I didn't go to the art supply store and buy brand new supplies. I was going out and repurposing or uh, changing the purpose of a a piece of material that was probably going to go to the landfill at some point. What led to that decision? Was it something about this having a life before well, I think some of it were some influences from artists before me, mm. um, certainly. But also, I think it was just you know the environment right now. Everybody and this you know even going back twelve years, we were all talking about 
recycling materials and and trying to cut back on on waste. Sure. And so it it just was a win win, I guess, when I looked at it. Yeah. Tell me the story about the first time you put some of your art out there in a public way. Okay. Well, I, I took a big chance. Apparently, um, I was a little bold in that I saw a call for an exhibition in London. Now, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. <laughs> I've never been to London, but I decided I was going to enter this. Um, it was called Postcards from Dystopia. Okay. And they wanted you to make a piece of art the size of a postcard, so five by seven or smaller and use this theme, and um, I made an assemblage piece. I took a photograph of it, and I entered the um, call for exhibits online, and to my surprise, I received an email back saying I made the show, <laughs> and you know, could we make arrangements to ship the, the piece to, to London for the exhibit? Wow. And I think at the time, I had maybe only been making art Definitely less than a year, mm-hmm. um, so I really didn't think I had a chance. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was it was quite a shot of adrenaline, and it made me realize, well, maybe I can do this. Wow. You know, maybe maybe people would like to hear what I have to say. What are some of your favorite memories of the different shows and experiences you've had, as well as some of the memories of the places where your pieces go and end up living? Right. 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 I think part that I enjoy the most and is most vivid in my memories are the times that I'm at the gallery or here at Satch Art Space and I get to meet the person purchasing the art. Mm -hmm. We get to talk about it um, and and then form a relationship with them. Sure. And so um, the patrons are wonderful. It's it's great and it's it's kind of almost um, easier to say goodbye to a piece of art that you've created uh-huh. when you meet the person and you know the home it's going to <laughs> and how much they love it. They're yeah. going to love it as much as I love it. Oh, that's cool. Um, and it and it's exciting to learn where your pieces travel. Sure. Um, I've, I obviously have, um, when I was up in Michigan, a lot of buyers were from Chicago, mm-hmm. but I also have a piece that went to Berlin, wow. um, and then um, now to Syracuse, New York, so um, Cincinnati, Washington, D.C., so it's exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm also interested, too, to know what happened to the piece you sent to London. Well, um, it came back, Okay. and so it's, it's in my uh, working studio and it is um, labeled not for sale. I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> Very good. We're here in your space right now, and I'm looking around, and how would you describe the vibe, for lack of a better word, that you're trying to facilitate with your space? Oh, that's a good question, the vibe. Let's see. Well, I guess first and foremost, it's important to me that the experience here for the public is similar to the positive experiences I've had with galleries in the mm, past. Okay. So my time when I was up in Michigan in a gallery, I remember that it was welcoming, that I felt like I was free to come in. Um, I felt like um, I wanted to do that same for the public here. Okay. So I wanted people to feel comfortable to come in. I wanted them to feel like I appreciated them coming in, appreciate mm-hmm. their comments but also for them to feel like it was a place for them to learn. Sure. Um, you know, maybe experience art they haven't seen before, mm. um, have conversations about it. And then another part that was incorporated was music. We felt that the music that was in the room at the time of the openings was important too. 
So we have uh, made an investment. I bought a stereo, a nice stereo <laughs> to put in here, and we're playing exclusively vinyl. Oh, nice. And so every time we're open, we have curated vinyl on, which oh, has been awesome. wonderful. Very cool. Yeah. What is coming up that you're looking forward to later on this fall? What do you have on tap? Because I know we can come in and we can see your work, but I know that mm -hmm. your space is also divided, and so you're highlighting other works from other folks. Correct. Um, yeah, so far in my two years here, um, have done over 19 new shows. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so um, what I have uh, a much larger space here on the main floor now, which allows me to, to do more, and I have two separate rooms. So I'll have one room, we'll have a new show each, each month, and then the next month I'll rotate in the other room. So I've always got something fresh, but typically items are up for 60 days, which allows people more time to in case they can't sure, get in right sure. away. In October, first Friday, which is on the 6th, um, in the Gray Studio, I'm going to have an exhibit called Objects, Bought, Bequeathed, Beloved, and Worthy of Your Home. <laughs> so that'll be what I call Satch Finds okay. versus a Satch Original. So a Satch Find is something that I think is pretty darn interesting and would be wonderful to live with. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's your opportunity to get a Satch Find and then in the white room, we'll have um, Satch Assemblages. Those are all the originals. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So in addition to encouraging everybody that's listening to come down and check out this space um, and listen to the amazing music and have conversations about all the amazing objects and art pieces here, you also need to come here because you need to ask Satch how she got the name Satch, because that's a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> Contributor Pete Brown visited Satch at her studio in Circle City Industrial Complex, and you can visit her and learn that story of her name at Satch Art Space for her November 1st Friday show. It's called Sivavis, the Surreal Subconscious, and it opens on November 3rd and runs through December of this year. Learn more at Satch, that's S-A-T-C-H, hyphen artist dot com. By the way, in a few weeks, you'll hear Pete's profile of Satch's husband, fellow artist Ron Kern. Our next story falls under the category of, would you put these two together at a cocktail party? The two, In Fiber, an association of central Indiana fiber artists, and ISPE, the Indiana Society of Professional Engineers. But together they came over the last year, collaborating to ask what happens when professional engineers are asked to define power, and fiber artists then interpret those definitions. I invited artist Ann Luther, who's also an engineer, and engineer Sanders Hillis, an officer in ISPE, to talk about how this partnership came about. Ann, I'm going to turn to you because you have two hats as an engineer and as a fiber artist. Where did the idea of this project come from? Is this your brainchild? It is, because the word this year for spirit in place is power. And engineers are involved with all aspects of power. So I, it resonated that this would be a good collaboration between the Indiana Society of Professional Engineers, which I'm the program chair, and the group In Fiber, which is a group of fiber artists here in central Indiana, where we would have the engineers define what power is to them and have the artists create it, whatever they said, whatever that inspiration was, and then take that and run with it and collaborate with the engineers to create a piece of art. 
Sanders, when you first heard this idea, were you like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> or, or did you did your mind instantly envision something? Um, I uh, Anne had to do a little arm twisting. <laughs> it was uh, it, all of the engineers are we're not exactly known for being extra extroverts and uh, jumping out ahead of things that are new and exciting. So we uh, we did uh, we did come on board. Um, we're always interested in. Um, public activities and and getting out there and and uh, just being visible and uh, this seemed like a great opportunity for us not only from a from an organizational perspective but also from a individual uh, perspective just because uh, any time we can be involved in a in a, something that's a little different it always will grow you yeah of course tell me about and this might be two different answers from the two of you but tell me about a piece that. Tells the public something about engineers they wouldn't natively know. So the range of definitions that we received from power range from the power of family all the way to the power of Mother Nature and its destructive force. Mm. So we had a broad definition provided, and then some of them were very detailed with a paragraph or two written about what power was to them to just knowledge is power. Mm. So there's a wide range. And I think that speaks to the diversity of the engineers that responded to it. I have, as an engineer, I responded to the power of water because I think having drinkable water is probably the most important thing related to any civilization, even more so than electricity, even though Sanders is an electrical engineer. So I'm sorry, Sanders. No, no, no arm wrestling in the studio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, but I feel very strongly that we do need a safe form of drinking water. So that's why I I chose that particular definition of power. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that, um, I mean, the easy one is always to think about, you know, turning on the lights and, and heating the home and things like that. Um, so uh, I think that some of the some of the more creative and more um, descriptive um, things that some of the engineers came up with were quite interesting. My definition, my own, was uh, more uh, broad-based. I, I view power much bigger, even though I am an electrical engineer, I view power much bigger than... Uh, being confined to such a small space. How um, do you define it for yourself? Um, it's a. It's so much more um, broad-based than that. I mean, anything that happens in the world and th- that has happened is always has some amount of power behind it. Whether it be, as Anne mentioned, knowledge, whether it be physical uh, power, or whether it be electrical power. Um, I chose a pretty broad definition that kind of described just moving from some form of chaos into some form of order, um, simply because that's how, you know, we as a society and a, as, a, as a world function and, uh, and use the power that we have, whether it be knowledge or physical. So the power to see or create some rules to make sense of things. Indeed. And, it, it, you know, the interesting thing about it is, um, you know, that, I mean, we all have things we manage. We all have things we do. And uh, if you take a step back and look at how things get done, it's because someone or something has 
harnessed some form of power and moved it ahead. And I, I find that fascinating. Artist and engineer Ann Luther and engineer Sanders Hillis. Their one-of-a-kind exhibit is called Stitched Up Power, and it's at the Athenaeum Art Gallery from November 4th through the 12th. It's part of this year's Power Theme Spirit and Place Festival, and you can learn more at spiritandplace.org. The opening on the 4th is free, but they'd love to have your RSVP by November 3rd. You're tuned to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, just around the corner honoring the golden age of Indies funk and soul. The first Eat Drink Indies, Jolene Ketzenberger talks with Teresa Vernon, the regional director for the Kitchen Community, who helped organize an event that's part of the upcoming Spirit and Place Festival. We're talking today with Teresa Vernon, regional director for the Kitchen Community, one of the organizers for the event, The Power of Food, seven short stories, part of the 22nd annual Spirit and Place Festival, with this year's theme of power. So, Teresa, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. So if you would, Teresa, tell us about the event, The Power of Food, seven short stories. Yeah. So it just it just made sense because the theme power, food is literally our power. It's what fuels us. Exactly. It's the building blocks of every cell in our body. So it just makes sense that this is a great theme to work food into. Food is power in that it builds our families, it builds our community, it's our culture, it's our tradition. There's so many aspects of how food is power. It's power in that if there is no food, it destroys communities and families and people. And so there's just so many different ways to look at it. So it's kind of a natural. Yes, yes, it's a natural. Our event is a storytelling event, and Everybody has a food story. Yes, so, they do. That's true. Um, my organization, we're out in the field talking. As we talk to people, people share with us their food story innately. They just tell us their food stories. So we thought it would be fun to uh, put the microphone in front of people and let them be able to share it on stage. Well, tell me about the kitchen community. What What is that? So the kitchen community, we are a national non-for-profit that launched in Indianapolis in November. So we haven't quite been here for a year. Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. So a new organization. It, Yes, we're a new organization, and we build learning gardens in city schools, focusing on those with a high free and reduced lunch percentage and um, underserved communities. Uh, What we do is we build learning gardens in city schools to connect, to provide exposure to and education on real food for these kids that are in um, underserved schools. So how many... How many learning gardens do you have? So far, we uh, just kicked off our 27th yesterday. Our goal is to have 100 in Indianapolis by 2020. So, Have you had a, a good reception to the gardens? Absolutely. Well, the schools absolutely love them, as do the community. I mean, our, our tagline is community through food. And so, again, back to that power thing of how um, the, uh, food is power is and building communities. And so it strengthens the school. It strengthens the school community. Um, it strengthens the kids by encouraging them to eat healthy, real food, um, creating these lifelong uh, behavior habits that uh, that will um, hopefully, you know, it would take hold. Yes, right? absolutely. Um, so, what do the what do the children do? Do they actually? Raise food? Do you yes. actually have a garden? Are there, you know, what's yes. it like? Each school maintains their garden. Our program team works with the school to assure that they have a healthy, thriving garden. But the school does maintain the garden. This, the garden team works with the students and they plant the crops. We provide all the seeds and starts and the and the uh, the growing 
the garden plans, but they do all the planting and harvesting themselves and, and maintaining the gardens. And they get to actually enjoy the food, Yes, right? that is absolutely the number one goal is to have the children enjoy the food. Oh, that's the, awesome. The teachers will harvest the, the produce and bring it into the classroom for salad tasting days, or some of the schools will send it home in a backpack program, or Beach Grove City Schools, they actually launched a garden to cafeteria and getting the produce that they harvested into their actual cafeterias. Oh, that's great. That is inspiring. Now, tell me a little bit about the actual event. What What's going to take place? You know, you have... Um, a short story yes. kind of a competition? Yes. It's seven seven-minute stories about the power of food. And so our storytellers lined up. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled that Dan Wakefield is going to be one of our storytellers. Oh, my goodness. But I, yes, that exactly. Is, Talk awesome. about the ultimate storyteller. <laughs> um, so he will have a story. We will have a storyteller that is an 11-year-old student that is in, uh, I'm not going to tell what the stories are about, okay. but he's in, he's one of our schools that has a learning garden. We have somebody talking about the power of food in the Jewish tradition, and then just a few other oh storytellers. So it's a very broad base of stories. Like I said, everybody has a food story. You can hear Jolene Ketzenberger's Eat, Drink, Indie Saturday mornings at 11 on WFYI, HD2, The Point. Welcome back to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble, and if you're one of those overachievers who likes to get a head start on your holiday shopping, stay tuned. But right now, the new Cummins building in downtown Indianapolis has an interior museum of international, national, and local art, including the work of Indianapolis artist Dorothy Alleg. WFYI's Jill Dittmeyer met Dorothy at the building to get a look at her commissioned piece, and she's here to tell us more. Dorothy's spent most of her career working for art museums, and she did a little bit of art on the side, she said, but it was just for fun. Then about 12 years ago, she realized maybe it was time for a change. I just decided I didn't want to, you know, grow old and wonder what would it, what could have happened if I'd devoted myself to my studio life full time. So I just decided, okay, I'm gonna retire from my museum job and uh, and start just being in the studio every day. She used to focus her art on making prints, but says she now spends most of her time painting. Although the Cummins installation is rather unusual for her style. Normally my work is more personal and it's more about things like emotional responses to a different place, you know, in travel or an architectural, a space architecturally or a landscape. Cummins hired local curator Mindy Taylor-Ross to outfit the entire building with art. She had a clear mandate from Cummins that they wanted work that related to their mission somehow. They didn't want just you know, a beautiful painting or sculpture. I had done a previous iteration of this um, series uh, years ago, and she saw that, and we both sort of thought, hmm, that's, you know, an interesting um, subject matter for a corporation. Dorothy's work is on the second floor in an area identified as the leadership development space. It seemed like a good fit for this particular work. So we started identifying this Location, and then we looked at the dimensions, and that sort of dictated how large each of the 16 panels could be. They actually even knew 
some of the materials and finishes that would be nearby. So I tried not to pay too much attention to that because I didn't want it to be like a decorator uh, type installation. But um, it was, you know, it was nice to have all that information. Yeah, because you're, you're kind of on the, the west wall here in between a lot of glass. So there's a lot of light and we've got tables behind us that are kind of done in greens and brownish black and gray. So there's a lot of this kind of just calming cool, a lot of beige, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then we turn to your wall of your art. Uh, there's kind of a large didactic panel here, which doesn't usually uh, happen with my work, but it is really a system that I'm trying to describe. And what it is, is it's actually, if I go way back, it um, started with, with Carl Jung in the early 20th century when he defined the idea of an introvert and an extrovert. And I learned that not only did he develop that idea, but then Myers and Briggs, who were two of his followers, really developed it into a whole system of uh, personality assessment. So when I, I just got kind of really interested in that idea and trying to express it visually. So I came up with a series of symbols that represented their eight different characteristics, introversion, extroversion, sensing, intuition, feeling, thinking, and judging and perceiving. And so I made symbols for each of those characteristics. And then the 16 panels on display here are all the possible combinations of those. Uh, there are four. Each characteristic would have four of the eight qualities. So there are 16 possible combinations. Each panel represents a personality type, but Dorothy says it's not a personality test because observing and selecting an appealing panel is really more about measuring your preferences and not your abilities. I think really the reason it's successful is because it's about everyone's favorite subject themselves, <laughs> but it also works in a, on a different plane in that it talks about how you are in relation to the other people around you. And of course, she had me give it a try. Jill, you need to look at all 16 and pick one that you like, not just what do you gravitate towards. My eye keeps wanting to go back up to that one, which is unusual. Okay. And I like the one right next to it as well. Well, let's, let's go with the first one that okay. you chose, just for the purposes of discussion. The circle in that represents introvert. And the um, sort of the leaf, falling leaf like forms represent intuition. And the lattice structure over there represents feeling. And the, gosh, I'm not sure how to describe that, almost a wheel like uh, form suggests um, judging. So that would make you an INFJ. Uh, so an introverted person that relies a lot on on you know feeling and uh, I mean and also possibilities like intuition rather than just uh, like sensory information and that you like kind of close things up like you like closure. You can hear more from Dorothy about her work at Cummins and some of her other work as well. She's going to be giving a free lecture at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, Newfields, I guess is what we should be calling it now, um, on November the 5th at 2 o'clock. It's in the Toby. It's free, and it's all about the Cummins building and the integration of art and architecture there. They're going to have several of the people from the, the architects, uh, partners that were involved in it, along with some other artists and um, CAS uh, board members 
remember Mindy Taylor Ross, who actually put all of the installations together. And Dorothy will be there as well, too, to talk about uh, more about what you're going to see or, or not see <laughs> in the Commons building, depend on how far into the building you're allowed to, to get. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's plenty for people to see in the main lobby as well and just to learn more uh, about Dorothy and her unique art. Fantastic. Well, we have some other things to see and do on that calendar we call What Do We Do? And speaking of new fields, the first ever Earned Income Symposium for Cultural Institutions is going to be held at the Newfields campus November 7th and 8th. If you work as an arts administrator, maybe you sit on a board or maybe you're a, a committee volunteer or maybe you're just curious... Listen up. It's a two-day event. It features multiple discussion topics and speakers aimed at exploring earned income issues relevant to cultural institutions. Um, Some of the organizations represented on the panel include the Corning Museum of Glass, Americans for the Arts, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, Longwood Gardens, and Atlanta Botanical Garden, and lots, lots more. Very impressive people who know what they're talking about. So you can go to uh, discovernewfields.org to learn more about that. Find more to do at the IndieArts.org slash guide. That's the Arts Council of Indianapolis's Indie Arts Guide. And, of course, we'll be back again next week with our calendar that we call What What Do We Do? You're listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in Indianapolis and central Indiana. Your host is Sharon Gamble. If your arts organization has an event or activity of which you think we should be aware, please contact us at least three weeks in advance. You can write us at The Art of the Matter, care of WFYI, 1630 North Meridian Street, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46202, or you can email us at aotm at wfyi.org. You can also hear The Art of the Matter on wfyi.org. You're listening to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble. Coming up, Dee Shaud and Karen Greenstone do not agree on the function of works in clay. But right now, in the late 60s and early 70s, Indianapolis was a hotbed for funk and soul music. Today, DJs from around the world still hunt for records from Indy's funky heyday. Locally, two DJs, Antonio Lario and DJ Perrin, are keeping the sounds and beats of the era alive at their monthly Naptown Soul Club. Each month in the Pioneer at Fountain Square, the two DJs spin original vinyl 45s to showcase the incredible musical talent that existed here in what we used to call Naptown. Contributor Ben Shine recently talked with Antonio Lario to talk about the monthly dance club. Antonio, how did you come up with the idea for Naptown Soul Club? Well, DJ Perrin and myself started Naptown Soul Club based on our love for rare funk and soul 45s and rare funk and soul music, for that matter, uh, especially music from Indianapolis and the state of Indiana. Your events focus on vinyl-only selections. What makes that format and DJing with actual records so special to you guys? This is the original format that they came out on, and I think that's really important to play them as they are. This may be the only output of the band, so, you know, these bands... And this music, it's 50, 60 years old, but, you know, we're playing the original record and it's still here. A lot of these records are really hard to find, and um, even in this town where they came out in. So, you know, finding these records is tough, and then there's a lot of people around the world looking for them as well. I think it's important that people of Indianapolis hear this music, because a lot of people don't know that there was a great and huge soul and funk scene from here. Mm -hmm. And that's really the intent of Naptown Soul Club. Well, what are some of the go-to tracks that people seem to love at Naptown Soul Club? Well, the most famous track from this town is by a band called The Highlighters. It's mm-hmm. a song called 
the Funky 16 Corners. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge record around the world, but I don't think a lot of people here know about it. So obviously we play that because everybody knows it, at least as far as like the culture. Other tracks, Rhythm Machine, The Kick, Born Black by The Four Sensations, Vanguards, uh, all their tracks, obviously. Anything on Lamp, anything on Lulu, those are really the staple. Those were record labels that existed in Indianapolis exactly. in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, those are like the most famous record labels from here. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of records on smaller labels, but Lamp, Lulu, those are the big, the big ones. Any other hidden gems people should know about? I would throw in their Soul Heart Transplant, oh, my well, yeah. favorite soul song from I the mean, 60s. An absolute uh, banger for sure. <laughs> So how did you guys discover that you love old soul music? I mean, I know your background. You've been in punk rock bands since I've known you and rock and roll bands. How did you turn on to soul music? Um, you know, I've always listened to soul music. My mom, my, my dad, they listened to soul music. I grew up listening to, like, Otis Redding, Stax, stuff. So it was always there. I like to say the, the light bulb went off when I heard the, uh, the Funky 16 Corners <laughs> comp that Stone's Throw put out right. in the early 2000s. and. There were so many tracks on there, and I couldn't believe that they all came from Indianapolis, or a large amount of them did. And it just sparked my interest. I said, how could all these bands be unknown? This great music that it's sitting in basements all over the city. It's just incredible to think about. So that's really where, like, my love of deep funk and soul came from. And obviously, like, the DJ Shadow, Cut Chemist, mm -hmm. those things. Well, that's sure. what I was going to ask you, too. There's new music being made all the time. Why the focus on old music? Well, I think it's important for people to hear this music. I mean, it was made in Indianapolis, and no one talks about it here, right. or very few people do. And it's kind of a shame. I, uh, I think this city does a really good job of championing itself, but not when it comes to music and at least the history of, say, Indiana Avenue, where we don't right. talk about it. There's no plaque to Herb Miller. There's no statue of the vanguards. <laughs> and it doesn't make sense to me because... Around the world, everyone listens to this music and goes crazy for it. All these records from Indianapolis, but here in town, people don't know and they don't talk about it. So we're trying to get people from Indianapolis and Indiana to realize what a great cultural history we have here mm -hmm. with the records. That's really great. And it happens every month at the Pioneer, which is an awesome club. It does. It's the every third Saturday of the month. The last question I have to ask you is for the listeners at home that they want to get into. How can someone get into local old soul music? Like, where's a good place people could go find out more or learn more about the bands that were in Indianapolis in the 60s and 70s? I would start with, if you want to hear some of the rarer records and you want to get into it, I would pick up the Funky 16 Corners comp on Stone's Throw. It's readily available, it's easy to find, and it contains... I would say at least five to eight of the most famous records from here. So that's a good place to start. And then just start looking around. I mean, I know some of the stores in town have some local rare records. Some of the things aren't rare. Right. The Vanguards were a huge band. Their records are common, but they're amazing records. So just start looking around. You know, knowledge is power. Knowledge is key. The more you know, the more you'll find, the more you'll learn. Contributor Ben Shine with DJ Antonio Lario from Naptown Soul Club. Find out more about the monthly funky dance party at facebook.com slash Naptown Soul Club. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that one of our favorite questions for artists is what led you to this medium? 
I've been asking people that question for more than two decades, but never has an artist told me her first exposure was eating the raw materials of her craft. Karen Greenstone no longer eats clay, but she's obsessed with forming it into beautiful functional objects. Karen and fellow potter Dee Shaw dropped in to tell me about the upcoming Local Clay Potter's Guild's 20th anniversary show and sale. It's Friday, November 3rd, in the second floor great room at the Bloomington Convention Center. How did the material of clay first speak to you, Karen? Before we talk about this exhibit wow. and your co-founding of the Guild. <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, it was when I used to eat clay as a child. You ate clay? <laughs> I used to sit in the yard and pick up pieces of little rocks, and some of them were hard, probably granite. I'm from Syracuse, New York. And then some of them were probably shale or, or clay. And um, and I thought they were pretty good. <laughs> you may not want to put that in. But my first introduction to clay itself in terms of my actually making something, mm-hmm. I was living in Colorado, and I went and I visited a tile maker mm. in uh, Colorado outside of Denver. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And I never thought of myself as an artist, although I'd been making things since I was about seven years old with my hands. And I thought, well, I I don't draw. I can't draw. Mm -hmm. Well, not that I can't, but I I don't draw well. And I thought that's what an artist was. But then I realized that I could make things out of clay with my hands. When I saw this woman, I just thought, wow, this is incredible. What was it about the tiles that you saw there that appealed to you? Was it the glaze? Was it the colors? Was it It was everything. It was the atmosphere of the studio. Mm -hmm. Um, it was the t- the uh, color of the tiles. They were beautiful earthenware mm. tiles that I actually bought some and put them on a counter in my kitchen. Something about the woman and the way she was dressed, because I I'm pretty casual in my dress, and I and I mean there was just everything about it. The atmosphere was just it really appealed to me it spoke to me and here I was living in Colorado anyway which is you know you're very close to the earth there in terms of the mountains you can always see the mountains and so I it something clicked and I immediately uh, registered for classes after that right place right time right place right time and that was the beginning uh it was um a an adult uh it was called Opportunity School in Denver, run by, run by Denver Public Schools. And so I signed up for these classes and uh, got into them. It took a while because the classes were really popular. And then I heard about these teachers at um, Loretta Heights, uh, Nan and Jim McKinnell, Loretta Heights College. And they were incredible mentors for me. I signed up for their classes. And Nan was a fine artist, and she really taught me technique. And Jim was a chemical engineer, and he did the firing. And so the combination was really perfect oh, for me. The science and the art. The science and the art. and But it was even more than that because they lived there as artists in residence, and so they were there all of the time. And so I could go down and work in the studio whenever I wanted to, and they would most likely be there. And so um, we would talk about, gardening, diet, life. It wow. was much more than just a class. It was, they were mentors. They were inspiring and they were mentors. Dee is sitting here with a thought balloon over his head going, I, have, have I ever eaten any of my art supplies, aren't you? <laughs> no, I haven't. I've never eaten anything. <laughs> what, what, how, did, how did clay come to you or you come well, to clay? Well, ever since I was a small child, 
uh, my mother, who had been an, an art teacher in the public schools. Oh, you had no choice. And I always had art supplies yeah. and had lots of clay to work with. Mm. And so I had that plasticine clay, the kind that stains the carpet and so on. But uh, my mother would uh, set up a card table and cover it with a sheet of, uh, this is probably before plastic, but I would cover it and I would play with the clay. And then I loved that. I loved making little people and so on, which has followed me all the way through. And uh, then I went to college. I became an art major. Uh, I do like to draw and paint. But after I took uh, a ceramics class, I was kind of hooked on ceramics. And so it's always been a, something that I guess that I've been interested in. And in some ways, I didn't realize that until I was older, because in trying to find my own voice, I ultimately went back to my childhood experiences and said, this is what I really like. You you make these really whimsical figures, that, and I understand that you're sometimes inspired by politics, by world events. Are they are the figures you make now, are they related to those little people you were making as a child? In a way. Uh, I wasn't as uh, hooked with uh, literature and politics sure. and, and uh, tongue-in-cheek things. But, uh, yeah, I liked making little faces and people. And I made little soldiers and uh, little people doing things. Yes. Uh, but that occurred to me later in life to go back to that and thought, you know, that's where my I always have loved that. And so I... Love it now. <laughs> when you were putting together this exhibition, Karen, I know it's kind of a, a it must have a special place in your heart because it's your 20th anniversary. Yes. Um, you founded this guild or helped help start it. I think you pulled some other people in and said, let's do this, based a little bit on an organization you'd worked with in Colorado, right? That's in right, Denver. Colorado Potter's Guild. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you prepare for an exhibit like this? Do you do you say I want my works to be thematically linked that are going to be in this exhibit, or do you just survey? And this is a question for each of you: Do you survey recent work and say mm, these are the right ones to put in this exhibit? And if if you do it that way, how do you know which ones are the right ones? I don't do that at all. I make what I what I I love bowls, mm -hmm. and um, and that's one of the things that Nan McKinnell taught me, is we had to take an egg, crack it in half, and she said it's the beautiful curve in the eggshell. Oh. And so I'm always that just really hooked me, and so I'm always looking for that perfect curve. In the uh, in the bowl, and so I just love making bowls, and so I make bowls. I have just over the last few years come to really love making mugs. I never used to like making mugs, but I found Why? I didn't find the right form. Mm -hmm. I didn't find the right form. I want it to be sensual, and I want it to be functional, and I want it to be beautiful, and to actually find a mug that did that. It, it's taken me forever to do that, but now I love making mugs and, um, and you know, that feel that are balanced in the hand and yeah. that are just really... So I'm, I made a lot of mugs. I'm making a lot of mugs. I'm making some platters for the first time in a long time. They often, if not made correctly, they will get a compression fracture in the middle of them and then that's it. There are over 4,000 pieces of pottery in this show. I don't have to create a body of work that I think I have to make everything, you know, a, a variety of things. I can make whatever I want. Dee, how do you decide what to make for a show or what to put in a show? I make what I make. 
and I have a wide variety of interests, and I'm constantly in the studio. And when I get ready to select things for the show, I try to have a variety of things. Uh, many of my pieces are not useful or functional uh, because you can't put them in the oven or you can't eat off of them. But I enjoy making a variety of things. And so in this show, I'll have some stoneware that you can comfortably use and stick in the microwave. And I'll have a lot of things that are more whimsical and just fun to have. I call most of my lidded vessels reliquaries rather than anything else because you couldn't cook with them. You know, you, you know, a reliquary can be for a lot of things. You can have parts of a saint in there or your paper clips. And, <laughs> and maybe my stuff's a reliquary for paper clips. Uh, at any rate, uh, I make lots of different things in a variety of ways, and I just pack them up. Potters Deshot and Karen Greenstone see their work and that of more than 20 other members of the local Clay Potters Guild at their 20th anniversary show and sale. It's Friday and Saturday, November 3rd and 4th, in the second floor great room at the Bloomington Convention Center, and more than 4,000 pieces will be exhibited. Did I say early holiday shopping? You can get a sneak preview at localclay.net. By the way, the same opening night at the convention center, the Bloomington Spinners and Weavers Guild and the Indiana Glass Guild will also host shows and sales. Every week, a cultural manifesto's Kyle Long talks five songs with someone from our community. Here's this week's journey. I'm Kyle Long from Cultural Manifesto, and this week I have five songs with David Crosby, a two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and founding member of both The Birds and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. David Crosby is currently experiencing a renaissance as a solo artist. He's released three critically acclaimed solo LPs over the last three years, and he'll be bringing his solo show, David Crosby and Friends, to the Palladium on Saturday, November 4th. I asked Crosby what sparked this recent burst of creative energy. I think one of it is getting out of CSN. Uh, CSN had devolved to the point of just turn on the smoke machine and play your hits. And it was, we didn't like each other, we weren't friends with each other, uh, it wasn't any fun. So it was not an encouraging space for music. The the other thing, you know, so when I left CSN, I felt that uh, a great deal of freedom and a great deal of encouragement. I had a big head of steam built up and this this sort of trifecta that I've done in these last three records. Yeah, it came out in a pretty short amount of time and, and there's another one brewing. So I guess it's a good thing. And the first Crosby song we're going to listen to comes from his 1971 debut solo LP, If I Could Only Remember My Name. I asked Crosby about the album's classic protest anthem, What Are Their Names? The, the thing that's amazing about it is that it's even more relevant now than it was when I wrote it. It is exactly about what's wrong with this country. The corporations own our government, and that's wrong. Our our congressmen and senators are for sale, and they're all bought. They represent the people who paid them the money, not us. And that's a complete mess. And it's killing our country. It's doing us right in. It's killing our democracy. I wonder why they run it 
Up next, we're going to hear the closing track from If I Could Only Remember My Name, a multi-track a cappella titled I'd Swear There Was Somebody Here. I asked Crosby what influenced the creation of this piece. I wasn't listening. I was exploring. I was uh, inventing and exploring. I wasn't following anybody. I, I'm very happy I did. I like, I like, uh, I mean... <laughs> Some of that, that I swear there was somebody here, the last song in that record is probably one of the best things I ever did in my life. And it was an improvisation. Uh, it's six tracks of, that I did one after another in an echo chamber. And there they are. Boom. Next, we're going to listen to a track from one of Crosby's recent discs, a meditative song titled Drive Out to the Desert from the 2016 album Lighthouse. Yeah, I wrote that one, and I like it because it implies that there is a peace to be had if you can get your mind quieted down, if you can go out and look up at the sky in from the desert. Drive out to the desert Sail out on the sea away from the city and our fourth tune with David Crosby is Capital off his most recent LP Sky Trails the song offers a critique of the US Congress and I asked Crosby about the role of protest music in his work we come from troubadours in, in, in the middle ages in Europe okay that's what that's where folk music came from. Folk music begat rock and roll, which begat singer-songwriters music. And our job back then was to carry the news from town to town uh, and sometimes be the town crier. Say, it's 12 o'clock in Altwell, or it's 12 o'clock and you just elect an imbecile to be president of the country, and it's not of Altwell. Moving like sharks Through crowds of citizens Patriotic souls Visiting the capital And finally, I asked David Crosby about one of his signature songs, I Almost Cut My Hair, off Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's classic 1970 LP, Deja Vu. I'm tired of singing it because Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, uh, I had to do it every night because it was a mainstay in the show. But I, I don't like doing things because of, of the show. I like doing a song because it, it makes me feel something, and I think I can uh, use it to help you feel something. That's a, good, that's a good reason. And you can catch David Crosby live in central Indiana on Saturday, November 4th at the Palladium. Here, Kyle's A Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Wednesday nights at 8 or Saturday nights at 10. Thanks so much for listening to The Art of the Matter on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Sharon Gamble, and today's contributors included Pete Brown, Jill Dittmeyer, and Ben Shine. 
Hear The Art of the Matter Saturday mornings at 7 or join us Thursday nights at 8. And remember, you can also listen to and share our podcast at WFYI.org. Next week, something poisonous has invaded the Indiana State Museum. Fountain Square hosts a monthly comedy event, and APA fellow Sean Chen is everywhere. And of course, we'll have that arts calendar we call, What'll We Do? All of that and so much more on The Art of the Matter here on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. You've been listening to The Art of the Matter, a weekly show about the arts in central Indiana and Indianapolis. The Art of the Matter is executive producer Roxana Caldwell, contributor Jill Dittmeyer, and host Sharon Gamble. The Art of the Matter, made possible by the ongoing support of listeners like you.